Hello, and welcome to The Mason Jar on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and in a couple minutes, we're going to be bringing you an interview that Cindy conducted earlier this month with our friend Leslie Richards of The Homegrown Preschooler. Leslie is a high-energy person. Um, she's so much fun to talk to, to be around. Um, and, and I think that that really comes across in this interview with, that Cindy conducted with her. If you don't know anything about the Homegrown Preschooler, you can head over to homegrownpreschooler.com. They are dedicated to providing books, curriculum, and educational tools for young learners. The latest brain research continues to confirm that beginning with a hands-on approach enables children to progress easily to more complex subject matter. So Homegrown gives you the tools to ensure that your child has a rich and enjoyable childhood while growing in knowledge and character. They have a book called The Homegrown Preschooler, a, a curriculum, which is called A Year of Playing Skillfully, which we've actually used in our home and of course a network of support which includes uh, things like a podcast and facebook page and all those sorts of things that are that are uh, becoming more and more customary to support support uh, things like what homegrown is doing leslie speaks all over the country she speaks at homeschool conventions she's been to our conference that same energy that you're going to hear on the show today is, is also on display when she speaks at a conference or when she's just standing in her booth describing what they do her booth is always full of little kids and there's just uh, that same energy like i said is just always on display with the things that homegrown preschooler does so if you head over to thehomegrownpreschooler.com you can learn a little bit more about what they do you can look at their products see where they're going to be speaking read the blog find the podcast and the other resources they have all that you know sort of good stuff like I said, we've been using Homegrown Preschooler in my home. They have these really cool water beads that, the, that my boys like to use and just lots of good things for little kids to, to get their hands dirty and to be creative and to do the sort of tactile things that little kids learn from and that they develop through. So um, with that, I'm going to go ahead and kick it right over to Cindy and Leslie, and I hope you enjoy and we'll talk to you next time. Hello, uh, we're very excited to be here today. Uh, we have a special guest that I'm especially excited about. Uh, her name is Leslie Richards, and she's a homeschooling mother of five. She is, she is the author of two books, The Homegrown Preschooler and A Year of Playing Skillfully. And um, she, is, uh, she loves to talk about preschoolers. That's the thing I'm most excited about today. She's very passionate about classical education, and she's done, she, she has a good background in understanding um, the science behind um, preschool and what are the things that we should do and not do um, with our preschoolers. And that, that's been a topic that has come up probably um, second to narration. <laughs> um, what do we do with our preschoolers has been one of the number one um, topics that, that we have questions about. And often we get them, especially a, a young among new parents, you know, what do, we're ready to go. Uh, we're raring to go. What do we do? Uh, my, my, um, my expertise is purely experiential, but Leslie has gone beyond just her own experience and she's done a lot of research. And so that's why I'm excited to have her on today. So welcome, Leslie. Welcome. I am so excited to be here. Yeah, so you have five children of your own who, whom you homeschool. Is that correct? Yes, I do. And your oldest has probably graduated. Is that right? Yes, she's graduated. She's in nursing school now doing her clinicals. And so it's really exciting to see everything that we've done kind of in action in the real world now. Right, right. You get get a little pat on the back here and there. Get start getting a little feedback uh, from <laughs> from all that hard work. Now, now, 
what what made you become interested? Um, not only are you interested in preschoolers, but you're actually interested in the actual developmental issues behind preschool. Um, how did that happen? Well, um, you know, that was kind of an accident. I, I am an accidental homeschool mom, even. <laughs> um, when my son was about 18 months old, he had a brain injury. And um, we know now that it had to do with a... a chromosomal issue that he was born with. It's really rare. He has an extra Y chromosome in every cell. So I like to tease him and tell him he is twice the man as everyone else. Um, it's very rare. He's six nine. He's 17 now. And he was always just huge. And, and we couldn't figure out why. And now we know that's why. Um, and he's going to keep growing until he's 22. So, um, wow. so I have my big gentle giant but anyway, when he was this little boy, um, he had this brain injury. And so we were suddenly kind of thrown into this world with neurologists and therapy and trying to get a um, prognosis for him. And we were basically told that he would never speak, that he would probably be in an in, in institution by the time he was 10 because he was so big and he was so violent. And a lot of the the violence was just the frustration at not being able to communicate. And so, I mean, you can imagine that to us just seemed like a death sentence for our little boy. And, oh, yes. And so they told us there's nothing you can do. And don't even spend money on therapy because you would be better served saving your money for someone to take care of him after you're gone. That is what the pediatrician told us. And wow. so that is an absolutely unacceptable answer to any mother. Um, so we went to work researching, and this was even before we had internet or whatever. So right, we were researching right. in UCLA Medical Library, and and I just did so much research. I think I gave myself a minor in neurology at the mm. time, and trying to figure out how can we make this work. And so I tried to put together a home program for him. I read every therapy manual I could come across. And so it was really through working with him that um, I came by all of this knowledge. And kind of as a side effect, we were in children's hospital rehab for so long. And I was really struggling with getting a first grader to school, you know, during those mm -hmm. hours. Because right. the, there was a 17 month wait for after school appointments and I couldn't do that. Right. So, right. so anyway, I decided to start homeschooling and my husband's um, enthusiastic, you know, why don't you just take this year with her? You know, we've put all this time, all this focus on this other child, take this year with her. And so we did a lot in the lobby of children's hospital. We did a lot at home. Um, while he was at therapy. And so we started this wonderful, you know, I ordered the big box of sunlight and we had tea parties and lots of reading on the couch. And we just had this storybook homeschooling year with my daughter. And so that's kind of what started us homeschooling. You know, we decided to bring my son home the following year from special ed as well. So, okay. um, so that's how we got started, and that's how I learned so much about the brain, which really is so applicable to typical children as well. Now, you said I, earlier you mentioned the audio, audio processing disorder. 
Um, is that something that they, is that what they called it, you know, 18 years ago, or is that newer? Um... No, they called it an auditory processing disorder. Like it just took him so much longer to think, I guess, about what we were saying and to respond that it was so hard to figure out what was actually getting in. Right. And you said, and one thing you said to me that I thought was so interesting was that because, um, now this is not a mental deficiency in any way. I mean, it's obviously a neurological deficiency or a neurological problem, but it's not, um, it wasn't affecting his IQ or anything. He was, he, because at, at a very young age, because he had trouble with the processing, what he was hearing, he began to write and, and read early. Yes. That, Yes, he taught himself as just a survival mechanism to write himself notes. You know, like I, I told you the story about how I we would get in the car and I would say, put on your seatbelt, put on your seatbelt, put on your seatbelt, like five times. And he would be staring at me and I'd obviously get frustrated because it would just look like disobedience or, you know, on the surface. And he started writing himself notes on post-its that said, put on your seatbelt and, and taped it to the back of the seat um, so that he could prompt himself to do the things that he needed to do. And so there was little notes all over our house for all kinds right. of things. Right. So. I just think that's fascinating because sometimes for parents to get a diagnosis like that, they can be, it, it can seem like. You know, there's no hope, and yet there you ha you see this over this compensating in another area where the child himself um, um, really offers himself solutions for his problem. I, I think that's fantastic. Oh. Oh, you know, and I think a lot of times doctors do try to give you kind of the worst case scenario, or yes, yes. And, and two, the other thing is, anytime they're talking about the brain, I mean, I think. They don't know what they're talking about a lot of times because the brain is so amazing. It heals itself in incredible ways and finds ways to compensate. I mean, far beyond, we're learning more and more and more about the plasticity of the brain and, and its ability to regenerate itself. And so I want to encourage any parents that are given that kind of diagnosis to really just kind of take a step back and kind of go, you know... God might have a completely different plan from what they're telling me because, you know what, God loves to show off. I have decided. <laughs> Absolutely loves to show off. Yeah, I've actually seen this with my mother. My mother had a brain aneurysm uh, about nine years ago. And on a scale of one to ten, they said it was a nine and they did not expect her to live. And she did live. And um, she, uh, her short-term memory uh, was is still somewhat impaired, but she came back and, and to watch her brain redevelop itself over the the course of time has been really fascinating. And one of the things, and this is just me doing my, um, you know, my wonder. I wonder. She loves ice cream, and I always think, I wonder if it's just the fat. If her brain is saying you must have fat, <laughs> and um, she, my mom eats ice cream a lot, and of course, you know, at her, it's perfectly fine for her to do that. And uh, but anyway, she's just had such a healing. Um, after this devastating brain injury that um, um, I do, I've noticed that too, that there's just so much they don't know about what how the brain can adapt to situations. It, it's really, it is really fascinating. And I mean, I think too, especially when you're talking about little kids, people are really kind of lacking in a 
basic understanding of child development in our culture in general. Right. And, um, and I think the science of child development and like what we know about how the brain works is almost at complete odds with the way that we're teaching children in schools. And, and I don't think it's a problem unique to preschool. I see it in college where they're insisting on electronic textbooks when we know that the retention rate is 30 to 40% lower than an actual physical book in your hand. So I'm looking at my daughter in nursing school with all of her online textbooks that she's required to have. And I'm thinking, why in the world would you hamstring a health professional with 40% less retention? Yes. Um, Yes. And I think we do similar things to preschoolers, but a lot of it is big business and textbooks. And, you know, you can't buy a used online textbook. So. No. You know, there's yeah, that's that's true too. Wow, but it's that's... not in the best interest of children the things that they're doing necessarily. A lot of times, it's just big business, and so I think we need to keep that in mind when we feel like, oh my goodness, are we keeping up with them? You know, next door, and are kids going to be able to function with technology and right, all of the little right. worrisome thoughts that nag us as mothers? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're worried about the future and um, we really, I always like to say, you know, we don't really know what the future is going to look like. So there has to be a way of educating that um, with this unknown factor, the future that, that has worked from generation to generation. And I agree with you. Uh, there's uh, my, my son last night, I went to his uh, parent teacher conference and the teacher was saying, and I have all the notes online and you can print them off if you want them. And my son, and she said, some kids don't like to print them off because they can't remember them. And my son said, no, I like to take the notes myself. And I, I remember much better when I write them down with handwriting. Mm-hmm. He said, even when I get the online notes, I have to rewrite them in my own handwriting. And I was so, pr- I was really proud of my son that he had knew that about himself and that he, um, and, and I thought as much information, I think what you're saying is, and I, here's what I boil down the culture to. We have a lot of teaching where we're very much about teaching. Um, we're not very savvy about how people learn. Um, so it, it, well, that's it's excellent. Just, yes. So, um, but uh, you, I want to, I didn't mention this and I meant to, you have a, a website, the home, the homegrown preschooler.com if people want to, um, um, find your stuff online. And I'm sure many of our, our listeners already know about that because it's so wonderful, but you, one of the things I noticed on your, your website is one of the talks you give is called the classical preschooler. Now, yes. For many people, that's right away going to, they're going to envision something um, very, very structured, very uh, rigorous for the preschooler. Is that, is that how you go about things with preschool and classically educating preschoolers? Oh, no, no, no. Um, It's so funny because that is what people think. Um, Oh, you're starting to teach them Latin, you know, straight away. (laughs) Um, No, I think... The most important thing to know about that is classical education, I think in its purest sense, looks to educate a child with what they need to know when they need to know it. Christopher Perrin uses that phrase. And I I think it's so true. 
And if we're looking at a preschooler, what a classical education looks like is it looks like trying to cultivate a sense of wonder because wonder is that starting point that they need to eventually work their way to wisdom. Um, and so for a classically educated preschooler, really, um, we're looking at spending time with stories and songs and art and those things that really make us human and sparking that wonder in them for them to want to do those things. Um, it's playing with numbers. It's playing with words and songs and nursery rhymes. And um, it's such a playful thing. Yeah, and, and I think that's where, you know, Charlotte, why I think this is where the overlap is with Charlotte Mason in classical education, because she's able to say that this is what you do with young children, and it very much fits um, that whole idea of what is a human, what does a human learn, and how, how do we how do we look with wonder and awe at our, at our environment. And with the preschooler, they're already there, they're already wondering, they're already uh, approaching it that way, and it's certainly not our job to kill that immediately by making you know, them fill out worksheets or... Well, um, I mean, and the thing, the, the frustrating thing, oh my gosh, I get so frustrated with the worksheets because it's like, oh my goodness, we can all agree that we have way too much bureaucracy in our lives. Why in the world do we want to envelop these little children in papers? Um at such an early age. And the reason is they make us feel better when we have yes. a paper. They make the teacher feel better. They make you feel like you can justify yourself before your mother-in-law, you know, if you have mm -hmm. a paper. And the thing is, is that they can fill them out, you know, to your satisfaction, but they're not really learning anything from that. Um, they're just kind of regurgitating. And, and I think, one of the things that's so important to understand about the brain when they're little is that we're building this cognitive network. And so when you have a baby, a baby is born with billions of neurons just kind of rolling around in there, mm -hmm. largely unorganized. And I'm giving you the, the way the lay person's version. Oh, here. yes. That's just what we want. <laughs> like way down. Um, and so as a child takes in different types of sensory stimulation, those neurons form into synapses and they're forming this um, cognitive network that your kid is going to have for the rest of their life. And so we're doing this big construction work, primarily through sensory input, right? Right. Not through informational input. It's just not the time. And I, I, I hate using a machine analogy because I feel like that's kind of inhumane or whatever, but, right. but the idea, I mean, the brain is more powerful than the most powerful supercomputer that you could even imagine. Mm -hmm. And if you were building a computer, you would not try to use it before it was built. You know what I mean? You would not be trying to, um, put your, um, information in there before you would finish the circuit board. Right, that would be right. foolish. And so I think that the, the emphasis on pushing all of this information at them so early, what happens is the brain kind of goes, okay, we'll work on that. And we won't, we're not building right now. We're 
processing information and you're losing this valuable time where you could be really building a substantial, let's say, mathematical network for calculus, but you're wasting all your time drilling on facts, which could be easily done later, more efficiently done later. Um, So you're actually kind of hamstringing the brain. See, the other thing that's happening while these synapses are being formed, the brain is also culling away cells that aren't being used, Mm. that aren't being stimulated. And so there's this pruning effect that's happening, right? Um, That pruning continues through puberty. The more sensory stimulation that we have, the more, and it's really funny. I love how God does things. It's so amazing. So the act of squishing your toes in mud, for example, actually stimulates the part of the brain that does calculus. Wow. (laughs) Okay. So we're we're forming, you know, we're forming that part of the brain. Um, When kids... Like, you know, there's always little kids, like you give them a yogurt and the yogurt goes on the high chair and the two hands are in the high chair, you know, squishing it all over, you know, in circles. (laughs) And, and that's frustrating to moms, but the brain needs that stimulation to build the cognitive network. And it used to be that we could put, you know, our kids spent a lot of time outside in creeks, playing in mud puddles, making mud pies, um, they, it came naturally. And now we have to kind of be more intentional, I guess, about providing those sensory experiences for them. Yeah, because we're not only is our culture not about those things, it also is kind of about protecting them from those things, like keeping them away from that. Like we don't want our children to go barefoot because they might get, you know, lockjaw or I don't, I don't even know, <laughs> you know, we, I mean, not to say, you know, that these things aren't obviously the parent's job is to protect the child, but we have this really cocooned culture where um, we're afraid to let our children squish their feet in the mud and um and so we're we're stealing from them the these opportunities to to be mathematicians maybe later well and here's another real interesting thing imaginary play now when i'm i'm talking about imaginary play where you have fallen into this other world and and i'm sure everyone that's listening can think of a time when they were small where something just seemed real that Mm. wasn't real When you fall into that imaginary play state, synapses are formed in the part of the brain that governs self-control and executive function. And those are the num that's the number one indicator of a successful adult is self-control and executive function, even more so than IQ. And so the more we overschedule our children, the more we direct everything. Oh, oh my goodness, I just read an article yesterday about a school that playground games have to be approved. Oh, yes. And, and I was like, are you kidding? They can't even have free imaginary, you so know. they can't even make up their own games. They have no, to. No, they have to be approved. And the rules have to be written out. And they, you know. Um, and wow. so far, so far only two have been approved. So, um <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my goodness. They, thankfully, they can still play freeze tag and stick in the mud, but that's it. Um, okay. <laughs> but you can see why we have adults without self-control. 
Mm. We see, we have adults that can't manage their time, you know, and that are so stressed out because they don't have executive function skills. So allowing children to have that free play time, that creativity, kind of laying a banquet for them, you know, where they have a place of beauty to practice those things and, and just that freedom is so important. I mean, so much more important than, oh my goodness, which math curriculum should I get for my advanced four-year-old? Which yes. I get those emails all the time. I actually got an email the other day from someone who wanted to start kindergarten with their two-and-a-half-year-old because they just really thought they were ready. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Don't. Right. But, exactly. Because they are ready to learn uh, and they are free to learn. And there's nothing that can can take that away from them unless you take it away from them by over-scheduling them and over uh, over teaching them, um, you know, f- stealing those moments from their brains to cultivate wonder and cultivate this executive function like you're, that you're talking about. Um, that's, you know, when Raymond Moore, uh, years ago when we mm-hmm. first started homeschooling, um, the main book about homeschooling was called Better Late Than mm-hmm. Early. And that was the homeschool movement really was born in this culture from that idea that um, his early books were about not homeschooling all the way through high school, but really delaying um, education, uh, uh, formal education in your children till maybe third or fourth grade, because that was what the research was showing was the ideal time to start um, more formal education, not these um, early preschool, first, second, third grade, were not the ideal time to start formal reading, formal math. Now, a lot of kids learn that, like you said, a lot of kids are going to learn those things anyway, um, and you're wa- sometimes you're just wasting so much time, um, you know, ty- th- th- any kind of developmental thing. I can I can spend hours and hours and days and days teaching my child how to tie their shoe at two or three or four or five, or I can at six I can teach them in uh, you know once <laughs> or twice, uh, one, once or twice to, with the child. But um, well, that just happens I mean, over and over again in everything. And Raymond Moore, too, he did definitely um, kind of pound the point that trying to do it early is actually causing damage to the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. And which I th- I really think that that is true. That And, and it's funny because I've had neurologists come and hear me talk and and I love it when they're nodding their heads and raising mm-hmm. their hands and saying, yes, this is... This is right on. And and I'm just befuddled by why science only matters when it's convenient, I think. To yeah. Yeah. Quickly. But, you know, for some reason we have it in our mind and, and it's like, I feel like it goes back to that teaching is learning and we don't understand that um, there is a time for, for, for formal learning, for teaching, but um, so much of learning is done in spite of our teaching. <laughs> and uh, and sometimes all, of, all we're doing is getting in the way. None of this is to say that learning is not important. It's exactly the opposite. Because learning is important, we, we need to be very, very careful how we go about it with these early years, that we, we don't want to stifle them by filling their minds with things, um, what, because we're stealing away from the real work of the brain at that point. Well, yeah, I, I get and, that too. And we bulldoze. No, we just bulldoze yeah. them, you know, and, and we do it because we have, 
I mean, we want everybody to think that we're doing a good job. I mean, after all, they are our report card, right? Um, yeah. And now, oh my goodness, that's so toxic. It, it's so, I mean, I think that's something we really need to be aware of is that it's really easy for us to put toxic expectations on them. And, and I really think, I mean, when I speak, I talk about really trying to work on developing yourself you know, rather than developing yourself through your child, um, you know, otherwise we can do some damage. I agree. And I, isn't, I, I, this is one of the things about the homeschool movement. I think if we could be really honest about a few little things, we could tweak, um, the way we go about things. And I think we would all be better people for, and that is one of them, the danger that mom puts too much of herself um, aside in order to be the homeschooling mom. And then all of her self-worth is coming, is on her children. And that is a burden that they can't bear. And, um, and, and, and you know, we, we make the joke, oh, I got my test scores back. You know, how did my kids yes. do on the, on the SAT? And we, we do, we feel like it, it's our test score. Um, and that, that really isn't the healthiest uh, environment to, to homeschool in. Not for us or for them. And, right. and I think, especially since um, our kids grow up and they will make choices maybe that we don't agree with. Um, and, and it can really be devastating for a mom who's poured everything into this imagined life, you know. And, and the thing is, it's, I mean, it's hard to watch them bobble around in the real world, you know. Um, looking forward but i think we we need to recognize that you know what they are gonna bobble around a little bit they should bobble around a little bit and make their faith their own and and come into who they really are to be authentic people um you know i don't want my child to be a hollow man you know with his headpiece stuffed full of straw you know um, right. Of everything I've thought was important to stuff in there, you know, um, because that's not that's not effective. And I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not wise enough to know what God wants my child to to be. I'm just not. Right. I always say when we're educating for if, if our children are free people or as Charlotte Mason says, they're born persons, mm -hmm. then that means that when we, they, we get to our, our past our time. Um, we have to step back and let them be those free people that God's created them to be. And the story of creation is a story of fall and redemption. Mm -hmm. And when our children fall, whether it's little falls along the way, when they fall out, we could talk about preschoolers. What is it? What? How dangerous is it for a preschooler to go through the world when he's never been allowed to fall down and skin his knee? Mm -hmm. Now he's in greater danger physically because he doesn't know how to lift his foot the right way, maybe, or he hasn't learned to step over rocks. And so now he's endangered in the same way with our children along the way. They have to be allowed to fall um, because if they're going to be redeemed by the Lord, they have to know that that redemption is theirs also. And it's not something we can hand them off. We can hand them truth for, for those times when they can access, when they need it and they can access it. But we can't do that for them. That has to be between them and the Lord. It's very difficult. <laughs> oh, yes. It's, I mean, I think it's so hard. But you know what? There was only one perfect child that 
ever walk the earth wasn't mine and it wasn't yours. <laughs> and there, there's been so many mothers that have to wait to see the fruit of their efforts. And, and I mean, this is a really long-term process. And, and I think yes. that's the thing is that we're so instant gratification that those worksheets yes. do make us feel better. But when I speak, I talk about um, the idea of building a cathedral and that mm-hmm. educating a child is like building a cathedral. And just like when they were working on building those Gothic cathedrals, um, I was thinking about Salisbury Cathedral, for example. Mm. I mean, someone might toil for 30 years cutting stone for that cathedral, knowing full well that it would take 100 years for it to be built, that they would never see the fruit of their efforts. And, And it's really a similar thing. You know, we might never live to see the fruit of our efforts in our children or in our grandchildren, but it's still that daily faithfulness of cutting that stone um, is so important. Yeah. The kingdom is bigger than our own individual king, little kingdoms. There's a bigger kingdom. And when we look up and we see that, I think we can work faithfully in our families without a fear, without um, panic, um, knowing that, um, Okay, I don't know how this is all going to work out, but um, um, this is this kingdom is God's kingdom, and I know that it's He He has it all under control. Um, and I mean, now, those are really big ideas, but I think there's a level of practicality to that, you know, as well. Oh. Yes, I, I mean, we have the job of being faithful. I, I believe that that you know we we have to be faithful in faith with we we with what we can't see. So. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so I get these letters and I know you, you mentioned math, but also what about reading? What, what, what does the research show about reading? Because so many times I'll be talking to a mom and she'll say, what do you do for reading? I'm really worried about my child. They're not reading well. And I'll go off on this little thing and then I'll stop myself halfway through and say, how old is your child? <laughs> yes. and, and she'll say four. And then I'm just like, oh, my goodness, you know, go go read them a book or a poem. Uh, you know, don't start stressing about reading. If, if the child, you know, if the child is clamoring to read, that's one thing. But if you're panicking um, at because the child isn't learning to read at that age, uh, what what does the research show about reading? OK, um, for as far as um, the neurological basis for that, there's a part of the brain that has to views, right, actually physically grow together across both sides of the brain for reading to be pleasant. And it's almost like a circuit finishing. Okay. So for it to be pleasant and easy and smooth, that has to fuse. The brain can still learn to read, but it takes a very awkward workaround. Okay. So you can teach a five-year-old to read who does not have that part of the brain fused yet. But they won't love it. It'll oh. be hard and it will be laborious and um, there will be tears. And those are the kids. And see, the trouble is, is that if we force this, then they get set in that workaround. So when it does fuse, they're still following incorrect pathways in the brain. And so these are the kids that hate reading like their whole lives because they were forced. Now, in talking with the neurologist about this, what what um, our neurologist was telling me was that this happens naturally between five and nine and that mm. five is natural and nine is natural. 
And in boys, especially, it can tend to be farther down the spectrum than with girls, just because of rate of development. And it would be completely unreasonable for you to expect everyone to be able to read in September of their fifth year. Any more than you would expect every child in that class to be exactly the same height. That is simply a growth issue of parts of the body growing and fusing. And so it's very unreasonable for us to put that on kids or on ourselves. Like, oh my gosh, my six-year-old can't read. You know, I'm a terrible homeschool mom. What am I, what have I done wrong? You know, um, because it's just a physical growth issue and you will see them when they're ready, pointing out letters and asking you, what does this one say? You know, and trying to decode things themselves and wanting to read themselves. And, and again, you know, my son, my, I had these two, you know, my two perfect children who taught themselves to read, you know, before they were in kindergarten, I thought I was the best homeschool mom. And I thought if your kid didn't read by five, you were a total slacker somehow, you know, I was so judgmental. About right, that. right. And then dun, 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 then the yes. third, third child, you know, comes and, and we, I would say, okay, A says, ah, and the funny thing is he's probably, if you measured IQ, my smartest kid, A says, ah, I don't get it. Fall off the chair, get a drink, drop the pencil, you know, just make me crazy, you know? Right. And, right. Um, and I started to think it was a discipline issue that maybe he's the middle child and he's not getting enough attention and he wants me to sit there with him longer, you know, or he's just playing me. I'm, I would, I could yeah, figure yeah. it out, but I'll be darned when he was almost nine years old, it was like a switch flipped and and it, that kid is funny, too. He's smart enough to know that it could really push one of my buttons if I was speaking at a homeschool conference and he'd tell everybody he couldn't read. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, see, that's how smart yeah. he was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but all of a sudden, the switch flipped, and he went from having kind of a scrawl to having this beautiful penmanship, and then he could just read everything, and... It's just fascinating to me. Now, did he like uh, nonfiction better than fiction by any chance? Um, um, or was he a fiction reader once he started to read? He's definitely a fiction. A fiction okay. Because my sure. uh, my one of my children that um, my oldest son was just all, he read every book. You know, it was one of those you can't keep the books in the house, and he read a lot of fiction. Uh, my second son ended up being much more interested. He would take a huge long book and then just read it for, you know, over and over and over again and just absorb every bit of information in that. And I, it was very interesting to see how different they were in their approach to reading. Well, he loved, like, I remember when he was a preschooler, he had a much longer attention span for books like I could read him something like for example like Lyle Lyle Crocodile which is kind of a long kids book that was right. his, very, his very very favorite um so I remember that one at the t same time I was reading maybe board books with other children that mm -hmm. he he would have that attention span for that now what's interesting about him now as a teenager is that he is extremely musical mm. and I mean like he could pick up any instrument and play it almost by ear just by messing with it a little bit. 
um, and has taught himself to play multiple instruments. And, you know, here's the kid I'm so worried about is 14 and leading worship at church, you know, right. right. Instruments that he taught himself to play, you know, um, so, so we kind of have to learn to trust that God has a purpose for each child and that, and that, and that their brain development is very much a part of that. Yes. Yes. And then there's some, I mean, he's loving now he's reading the red badge of courage yesterday and he was really loving that and, you know, thinking that that was a great book. So that's what he's doing now at 14. Right. Uh, right. When I was so worried that he wouldn't be able to catch up or keep up. So, and he also and really even, hated math too, as well. He just, right. and, and here's the other interesting thing with that particular child. He was my most school resistant kid. Mm-hmm. It, to the point where he said he didn't need to learn to read because he was going to live in the bushes because anytime he was under a roof, he could feel him, his body physically dying and that he didn't need to learn to read because he was never going to have a wife. So he didn't need any money. And so he would rationalize to me why he didn't need to do any schoolwork ever. And so I struggled with him for so long. And then it was really interesting. And I, I told you he's the middle child. And I have two academic older kids and he was really upset with himself because he hadn't done a lot of schoolwork at classical conversations and he didn't have any points for the auction or whatever, you know, the consequences that kind of come home to roost with him. And so we're driving home and he's all dejected because everyone else is playing with their whatevers that they got at the auction and he's got nothing. And he (laughs) says, well, you know, mom, next year I'm going to try so much harder. I really didn't do a lot of my work, but I'm going to do my, my work. And I'm like, well, buddy, you know, when I give you an assignment, you just got to do it. You can't fall off the chair and drop your pencil and go to the bathroom 900 times. And you just have to do it. And he looked at me and his eyes filled up with tears. And he said, it's just that every time you give me an assignment, I feel like you're setting a trap for me. And and he was so emotional. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, and he said it so, I mean, oh my gosh, he could barely talk. He was so overcome. And he said, Rebecca and Luke used to play with me all the time. And now all they ever do is schoolwork. And Mm. I feel like you're trying to lay the same trap for me. And I thought, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, my little overachievers, he sees it as broken relationship. Wow. That he sees it as something that has affected our family and his relationships. And so I really had to back off, you know, and rethink how school is going to look like for us. And I think this is really important if you have preschoolers and you have other kids as well, because they're watching what's happening. You know, and are they seeing a life that they want to gravitate to or whatever? Well, I put the brakes on, and this is actually the year that I wrote a year of playing skillfully. And so when I constructed it, the way I constructed it would be, was so that it would be very easy for an older sibling to take over a subject with a younger sibling. Mm, And so what we started to do is I said, okay, great. You know, Luke, you're the science teacher. Lily, you're the art teacher. Rebecca, you're teaching reading. And, and I cycled those older kids with the, that those younger ones 
purely for that relationship. I think that's fantastic. I think that, um, that is just really an ideal situation. And when we, anytime we can do that, I, I think that's, um, it gives mom some distance and it, and it, and it builds relationships all across the board. Wow. I love that. Um, let me see. Do, what do you think? Um, wh so what, what would be the best practices for teaching, say, math it, to young children? Okay. So I would say, um, again, it's a readiness thing. So you kind of want to watch. I have one little one who is so, all she thinks about, she thinks about everything in terms of math. And so she might be one that I, I might be willing to give some curriculum to a little bit early just because mm -hmm. she likes she's playing with it right and i think the relationship to math should be play so they should be counting things they should be cooking with you um we i'll push them on the swing and we count on the swing and count you know we might count by twos and count by fives and um anytime we can bring numbers in one of the things that I love doing is sending them out into the woods and saying, okay, bring me one of something, bring me two of something, bring me three of something. And, and we'll make a book about it. We'll count. Um, I like to use the five common topics with them, even when they're super little, mm -hmm. um, where we're taking things apart and seeing, you know, what are its part, what's its name, what's its parts, um, what's around it, you know? So we're always trying to count, you know, how many points are on this leaf and how many stems does it have? And, and I, I just think there's so much math in the world around them. They don't need a curriculum for sure. Um, I mean, and I would argue. I mean, that sounds all beautiful, but really that is what the research also is saying. Isn't oh my it? goodness. Okay. Well, we, you have a historical perspective and then you have a research perspective um, from a historical perspective it really wasn't until the last hundred years that we start, started teaching math before 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ancients didn't. They didn't teach it. In, I mean, it's really interesting how little math that kids came to, like, Oxford and Cambridge with, you know, as college Yeah, students. and they might dive into geometry, right, at that point. Yes. At Euclid, but with no previous real math you know, learning yeah, under well, their belt. For a while, it was kind of looked at as kind of plebeian, you know, that you oh, only yes. needed math. The merchant if... man needed the math. <laughs> exactly. So it wasn't really until the last hundred years, yet we still had brilliant mathematicians, right, before that. Right. So, um, so clearly, it's not all connected. And I think, again, the research does show that if we start too early, we can actually damage the nervous system. And there's also research to show that a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of ticks, like muscular ticks, sleep disturbances are caused because when little ones have too much mathematical stuff going on, I mean, it's almost like it shorts out circuits. Yeah. Like it really does. <laughs> like you can actually sprain your brain. Like l literally you can. And so um, it, it really slow is the way to go with math, for sure. And I, I think that there's enough research, like, oh, my goodness, I can give you a bunch of links. If I always feel like I should make some kind of page that's like 
the mother-in-law arsenal, you know, so that you can defend yourself. (laughs) Um, Well, it it really is hard in this culture because you have to re-educate people. And 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 even as homeschoolers, we're around a lot of of this alternative thinking. But then you you come up against someone who just says, you know, I just, you know, this kid should be able to do this, 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 and this. And and you you can almost fall over yourself and get tongue-tied trying to come up with you know, ways to counteract that, you know, it's wrong, but it's very hard to communicate that. Oh, and I mean, I have to confess, it's like, I have my littlest one is a late reader. And, you know, I've had three that read very early and, and she could care less. She's seven. And, Mm -hmm. and I mean, if you force her, she can, she can absolutely sound out words and stuff, but she's so mathematical. I've skipped her ahead you know, she just loves math, loves, 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 loves. And that's how she thinks. And so I am sure that it will come, but she just is is not, and she's also not showing the physical readiness as well. Um, in the way that she's drawing people and figures and and whatnot. So, Mm -hmm. but I'm not worried about it except when, you know, my, teenage daughter's friends or whatever is like she can't read you know (laughs) yeah and seven is quite young even though it seems old to us um, in the culture we live in it's still a a seven-year-old is still quite a small child (laughs) oh you know 100 percent. and then the stuff and this is also my kid that's taking everything apart she Mm -hmm. dismantled a three-hole punch who does that like i didn't even know you could take apart a (laughs) three-hole punch (laughs) But she's the kid that we've had to forbid to touch anything, you know, because (laughs) we've lost more functioning household appliances from her trying to figure out how it works, you know. So I'm not worried about her intellectually at all. And, And I mean, that's the thing. There's so much about just getting older. Don't you think, Cindy, gives you so much more freedom, I oh, think yeah. to let them be who they are. Whereas I think with my oldest, I did not let her be who she was. You know, most I just, of the it, people panicking. I think about preschool are definitely moms with it's their first couple kids. Um, then, and I mean, I know with with me, it was like, oh, you know, if I haven't started formal learning, but you know, when I have this huge body of children in front of this child, uh, if he's seven years old and I haven't gotten around to anything besides Rod and Staff preschool books, you know, and he, that he does because he wants to do them. Um, you know, I'm not too panicked about that. Uh, and, and it, and it worked. It, it's fine. It, it, it's not turned out to be, you know, everybody learned. I taught all my kids how to read and that if, if I didn't do anything else, you know, I always feel like, well, there's that. <laughs> um, so, um, um, even in spite of, uh, and what I was telling you earlier was it was interesting to me that, um, you know, I would have my phonics, pro- I had my phonics scheme down and it went along fine with two, three kids. And then somebody would come along and it, that my whole scheme would fall apart and I'd have to find a different, um, way of, of approaching phonics with that child. And some of that's just developmental. It's just timing. And then other times it it's just, they learn a little bit differently and just, just, learning you know mixing it up a little bit is helpful well and too it's funny because my my daughter we had done sunlight with her and she loved reading a different book every week you know it changed up all the time right my, my 
my next son who had autism, that was like the worst possible thing to do to him was to change the format, you know, all the time. And so he was my workbook, you know, Horizons Phonics kid that he right. just chewed up those workbooks, you know. So um, just ha- being brave enough to break out of, of you know, and, and look for and moms are usually pretty good at that. But but I think um as we probably need to wrap up here because I, you know, I, I know that it can get long, but I, I thought I'd ask you, what are the top three things that a mother should focus on in her homeschool? Do you um, have any ideas on that? I do. Okay. I think the first thing you really need to think about is the ritual in your home mm. because your children are going to remember far more about the overall aroma and, Um, ambiance of your home and the rhythm of your home. They're going to remember their childhood like a song and there's a rhythm to it. And so I think it's important to think especially um, how you can prepare to draw your children into the presence of God before you start your day. Usually that involves doing something for yourself before they wake up. Um, And I think one of the huge things is think about how you, how do you want your children to wake up in the morning? And, mm. and that's huge because, um, I think my temptation is to wake everybody up like bang, 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 <laughs> Sam, get up and unload the dishwasher. I mean, really? Is that how I want him to wake up? Mm-hmm. Do I want to take his face in my hands and tell him he is dearly loved and I'm so glad to see him? I mean, how am I going to wake him up? And and I think we become really utilitarian. The other thing about that ritual is I think cell phones are just a terrible, terrible thing. For me, the first, I use it as an alarm clock, right? But what right. I do is I reach across, I look at it, and I start my day as a consumer, As soon as I, you know, I'm consuming whatever information is coming at me from that thing. And so that just starts my day off poorly. And so I think it's important to think about how we start the day, how we're going to build community with them during the day. What are the things that they can look forward to every day? Um, What habits do I have to, to develop a culture of peace for them? The second thing I think is so important is... Because children are such sensory creatures, primarily, especially when we're talking about preschoolers, sensory creatures, what should they see in our home? What should they hear? What should they smell? I mean, we need to think about, are we laying a feast before them? You know, I think, am I okay with letting them touch beautiful things? How can I teach them to be around beautiful things without harming them? Um, that we need to think about that. And I think if we thought about that as much as we think about curriculum, we'd be completely out of the woods. We'd have, we wouldn't have anything to worry about. The third thing, um, that I think is so important is yourself as a teacher, because I think you are worth cultivating. And we pour all of this into cultivating these little kids a lot of times because we didn't have it for ourselves, right? But you are worth cultivating. And so I think it's important for you to think about some things that you've always wanted to do or always wanted to learn and and how you can create space for those things 
for yourself because that's going to model more to your children than anything else. A love for learning, um, a sense of wonder about the world. And I mean, that's where like Searsay Institute, especially for me, has been just huge in learning to cultivate that in myself and carving out time for myself to read and for myself to experience beauty in the world and um, and that those things aren't a waste and those things shouldn't come last, that we should cultivate ourselves. And so I think moms, the best thing you can do is ask yourself, what can I do this year to become the teacher I want for my children next year? Mm. Rather than putting all the weight on them, you know, what can you do? Um, because I think that modeling, you know, it's almost like you're creating this little um, place for them to be free, where you're giving them this structure, you're surrounding them with beauty and nice music and beautiful things to look at and good things to eat and smell and, and, and you're modeling learning. I mean, to me, that's like the perfect, you know, little environment for them. It and really I mean, is. It because means it's, so it's showing much more. them it's seamless. It's seamless. Classical education, Charlotte Mason, all these ways that are for humans, they're therefore the eight they're ageless and they're and they're across all the surfaces. And when you model that, um, I, I think that um, that then they then they you kinda you kind of pre preclude those questions, you know, well what do I need this for? Um, well, your learning is for your life. It's not just because you're in, you know, 11th grade or 7th grade or 9th grade. But, um, well, Leslie, that was just wonderful. Um, you're, you, you know, you have generously offered to give uh, the Mason Jar readers a 10% coupon code for your, for your website. And her, Leslie's website is thehomegrownpreschooler.com. And if you order anything from her and you put in the, um, in ca I think it's all caps here, um, Mason Jar, you'll get a 10% discount. So uh, we really, really thank you for that. Um, I, I highly recommend that you look at her um, stuff. And if you ever get a chance to hear Leslie speak, uh, you definitely want to go do that. So um, um, is do you have any closing words for us? Oh, well, um I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about this and just to encourage moms to relax and enjoy mm. their kids. And I really think that if you told yourself, I'm going to do nothing today but enjoy my child, you cannot go wrong. No. I t I, that is one thing that... Um, I see in the last like 10 or 11 years of my homeschool that I regret is that, uh, and it partially it was because I had uh, 10 or 11 years of puberty going on, <laughs> um, is that I feel, I feel like I lost my joy there and it would have been so uh, much better to communicate joy than to communicate, um, let's get our life in perfect order. <laughs> so... Uh, so I really appreciate you saying that. And I, I do think um, that's what your children will remember, the, the joyful times. And, and, and sometimes so. life is hard. Sometimes there's hardships. But, but when we have um, the Lord, we can also find joy in the midst of those also. 
Yes. I mean, and I think our kids are watching too when we even have hard years. You know, we're coming out of one right now. And our family has really learned things that they would not have learned. Our kids have stepped up in ways that they wouldn't have. And, and, you know, it's really wonderful to see when they do stuff on their own and step up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It really does force you to grow uh, everybody to grow in a family in a certain way when you, when you do come up against those hard times. And, and I, 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 I remember feeling really frustrated about that once. Um, I, all our kids were like in the same bedroom, the boys. And I, I was complaining about that to an older mom and she said, Oh no, no, that's how, how they're going to develop a closeness that they'll keep their whole lives. And they have, they have developed that closeness. So, um, well, but it's hard though. I think when you first start and you have little ones, it's so easy to control. I mean, it's, it's easy to control who their (laughs) friends are. It's easy to control what they read and what they eat and what you put in front of them. And then, as they grow, I think it's a little bit of a struggle as a mom when you're kind of like, oh boy, you know, I can't control this. And you've kind of gotten a little bit used to playing God, you know, and and controlling things. And you know what? Life is messy. And and you have these ideas about how things are going to turn out and what everybody's going to do. But life is messy and we are not omniscient and, um, and I think that's just a little bit of a reckoning probably all moms go through as their kids yes. grow. Yeah. And and that's just a season, I think, that – like, I don't think I was prepared quite for that, no, that it's reckoning. Hard. Yeah, and I always say it's hard to know whether you should prepare someone for that. I, I think the moms who are in that certainly need comfort and say, hey, we've already been there. This is part of it. It's just normal. You know, don't – you know, it – Life is hard. Um, God is good. And uh, these are the ways that people live with one another, sinners in relationship with one another. Um, but you don't like to scare the living daylights out of some, you know, younger no. moms. No, you know, that that is true. But at the same time, I wonder if we're talking enough about that in the homeschool world or if we're not setting people up for the idea that if they don't have these perfectly manicured children at the end of it they somehow aren't worthy or if their kids make choices that um yes yeah it's a lot to put on a mom and and I and I think that that's something we do need to address I agree I agree it probably doesn't hurt in the long run um to get a heads up (laughs) so well and two you know just Hypothetically, you could be speaking about truth and beauty and goodness and be up on the podium and your kid might take an Uber to go get a tattoo from a guy named Porkchop. That might actually... (laughs) Could that possibly happen to a real homeschooling mom? (laughs) It it could possibly have happened, but guess what? That kid could be an awesome kid. That kid could be a great kid that loves poetry and Shakespeare and is an excellent student and a helpful sibling and you know, it's not the end of the world. And so I think we tend to get like so bound up about, you know, being in control and having things look like we want them to look like or whatever. And, um, yeah, and I think that these things bring us cut, cut us up short because sometimes, and we we probably don't need to keep talking because I I'm have sorry. a that, no 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 it's not your fault <laughs> because I day. think we could actually go a, a whole long hour here on this, but um, 
yeah, we we don't think we're we're doing we're we're making ourselves up as gods until these things come up, and then we're like, I'm not in control of this, you know, and it it and brings us up short. So it's a reminder to moms that, um, yeah, you know, we are limited people and uh, we're limited by our circumstances and we're limited by, um, you know, our own sinful natures and uh, we are not ultimately God. So, um, but we do have the Lord and we can trust him. (laughs) Yes, 100%. Yes. 100%. Well, Leslie, it has been fantastic talking to you, and Thank um, you. we'll definitely have to have you come back and talk some more <laughs> about this because uh, uh, this is one of the big, the big ones that we face a lot of. So, um, uh, thank you very much. Mm-hmm.